Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle. I've been away for a couple of weeks, but the team have done a sterling job in the interim. I've been busy writing essays and also overseeing loft conversion work, which is now complete. <laughs> but uh, I'm sure we'll come on to that in a minute. Won't we, Bradley Gerard, when we talk about Kingfisher? We will, exactly, yeah. A bit of a, a refurb and you know, overhaul going on there. Good, good. And uh, Mark Robinson, how are you doing, Mark? Very well, John, very well. And we're going to talk about the oil price and, and the fallout from the oil price plunge on one of the companies you cover, Plexus. Indeed, yes. Uh, it's rarely out of the news uh, of late, the oil price plunge, but we'll get back to that in a moment. Indeed. And Harriet Russell, how are you doing, Harriet? Yeah. Good, good. Excellent. We're going to talk Tesco, aren't we? We are, we are. Wonderful, <laughs> wonderful. Not been, uh, not been a great week for them, but not terribly either. Could have been worse. It could have been worse. Okay. Let's start by talking more generally about what's been going on in the world at large this week as covered in seven days. Bradley, what, uh, what have we got to say yeah, this week? I guess one in, quite interesting story which made uh, the front of the FT yesterday, I think, um, was this whole um, Soros versus China battle, which is quite interesting. I mean, George Soros obviously famed for his um, shorting of sterling back in the early 90s, I think it was, when it the was. UK was forced to come out of the ERM. He basically just said in the TV interview, one one of the asset classes he was um, betting against was Asian currencies. He didn't even actually name the Chinese renminbi. But the day after that, the um, the People's Daily, which is sort of like the Communist Party's kind of mouthpiece, um, <laughs> suggested that uh, Mr. Soros's war on the renminbi and Hong Kong dollar cannot possibly succeed. So it's quite interesting because obviously if Soros is shorting renminbi, it's kind of... Um, just indicative, I suppose, of a, a view on China that obviously, you know, we talk about China a lot on the podcast and how fast it's growing and what problems the economy might have. So um, I just thought that was interesting and worth worth flagging up. Um, yeah, just because of the amount of coverage of China and just an interesting sort of tit-for-tat battle that might be going on here. It, but, it, but it is a managed currency. So well, I mean, exactly. I mean, I'm not a currency trader, but it seems to me that uh, China has the economic clout, if uh, they deem necessary, to start buying up US dollar assets at an increased weight. And, uh, you know, where does that leave him then? Mm. Well, he obviously sees the amount they've been spending in out, out of their reserves so far to try and kind of keep the renminbi. You know, it, it seems like they're slowly unpegging it. It's not The, the peg is not perhaps quite as hard as it has been historically so he sees therefore that given the strength of the dollar that the renminbi will weaken and that while china might spend money protecting it a bit it might not spend as much as it has done in the past but what wasn't the, the usual criticism anyway at least from the united states is that uh, the currency was 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 undervalued i think so yeah but it's been devaluing more i think in recent times that's what caused the um, problems in august for the stock market hmm and also the fact that the stock market there is not exactly a normal stock market in well, any yeah, sense of the word. Well. Yep. Um, but there you go. Uh, okay, so uh, good luck, Mr. Soros. I think the Chinese economy is perhaps a little bit stronger than the UK economy was back in 1992 when uh, yeah. when he made a killing there. But um, I there think you go. Right. It'll be there an interesting move. And, um, I guess as well, I mean, another thing um, that's worth maybe just talking about quickly is oil. I mean, as you mentioned in the intro there, it's HSBC did a note uh, this week that sort of looking at the average price per barrel it's predicting would be $45 and that's down from an estimate not that long ago that would be $60 and then um, the World Bank went one further and predicted an average price of $37 per barrel this year so um, the outlook for oil is looking quite bleak and that's obviously having an impact on emerging market 
countries which uh, export commodities and that I suppose links quite nicely to the fact that Aberdeen again has suffered some outflows. Aberdeen Asset Management, which is sort of emerging market and Asian equity specialist, you know, it's not not actually Aberdeen. No, not the not the well the city. Although, do you know what? Well. Having, having, having <laughs> you said that, I, I, pre- I read a story this week that uh, you know demand for property in the UK, one of the worst places for property demand was Aberdeen. Wow, which well, it must be. be related to the oil industry. Well, it, well it's links into our Plexus uh, article a little bit oh, uh, later on. Uh, but, but actually, I, I was talking to uh, the company's editor Ian Smith about this this morning, and uh, there's been any number of economic studies which uh, highlight the the link between a fall in energy prices and a converse rise in GDP. But we must be approaching this point now, and I don't think there's as much literature on this, which suggests that a prolonged period of uh, uh, weakened energy prices might have the reverse effect on the global economy, uh, as it takes it takes away aggregate demand uh, over a period of time. I mean, I'm not suggesting this is what's happening at the moment, but surely economists must be looking at this. I think, I think the question's been asked whether the falling oil price rather than representing a simple supply-demand imbalance on the basis of oversupply, actually represents uh, a massive weakening of demand. Yeah, that's, that's, that, that's the point. I mean, the, the point with the oil price is, well, in, in of itself, it's, it's, it's relatively meaningless. But what does make, what is important is, uh, you know, three, five, ten years ago, what people were thinking what the oil price might be now. Mm. That's, that's the significant figure because obviously long-dated capital projects were put it or initiated on this basis. So, I mean, like any other commodity price or any uh, statistic in isolation, it's, it's pretty much meaningless. But we've obviously overbooked and oversold or overcapitalized on uh, oil prices above $60 a barrel. And uh, goodness knows where we'll be this time next year. The, the one thing I would make a point, and this is a general point as well, is that uh, what's happened over the last uh, 18 months with the, uh, the Saudi-backed uh, uh, OPEC position is that it's storing up pressure on oil prices to come we're going to see a spike well above a hundred dollars a barrel at some point in the future because so much future production replenishment has been taken out i've quoted this before but the wood mckenzie have come out with a figure of 20 billion barrels so far and this is an unconventional supply this is long dated projects offshore onshore things that you just can't actually turn around in 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 six months or a year so at some point in the future because demand is still rising let's not forget that last year and this is driven by far east and well, exactly. Let's not forget that as oil prices were falling last year, it, it, we, we hit a record for annual demand growth of 1.8 million barrels. You know, that's pulling back this year. But you know, when, when, it does, when markets approach equilibrium and then tip over, you're going to see a very sharp correction. On the upside. On the upside. Absolutely. Which I agree with. I agree with that. I just don't think we know when, when the end is in sight of the current, yeah, current it, problems. It's, it's like, it's like uh, calling markets. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a fool's game. Really. Falling knives. Falling, falling knives. Although it has been bouncing this week. And yeah, the market bouncing with it, which is very unusual. I yeah. mean, usually markets and oil prices move in the opposite direction. But uh, yeah, it's been very unusual. Oil is bouncing back this week, but yeah. Well, I was talking to a few guys from uh, Gulf Marine Services last week. These are two Scotsmen, been in the industry for years, and they said they, this is unprecedented in terms of a depression, uh, uh, price depression on a percentage basis over a period of time, and it's it's a manufactured one as well. But anyway, hmm. I do remember that you know in the nineties when uh, you know Soros was uh, was having his pop at the pound, you know oil prices were yeah fifteen dollars a barrel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For a for a period there, but for a long period. Yeah, 
Was it was that purely? I, actually, I, I can't I can't speak with any authority in this. I was round at that point, but I'm just trying to think of the uh, the basic market fundamentals. Then I'm trying to think why they were so. What was the U.S. dollar doing then? That's a point. But who knows, Robert? Who knows? I think we need to go away and have a rethink yeah, before we, we reinvestigate. Answers on the back of a postcard. Uh, absolutely, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, low, low, low oil prices are nothing new. I think is the point. But they may rise in the year ahead. Uh, and I think you're right to, to mention that uh, you know projects are being basically well, the, canned. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, gen- and the general consensus is is that we're going to start to see some retracement during the third quarter. But it's you know finger in the air stuff. I mean that that's the general opinion. But the general opinion hasn't. Uh, been correct for the last year and a half and indeed okay so we, we might as well before we continue with seven days bradley let's talk plexus because i guess you know the whole oil price thing now is you know for, for some of the smaller companies out there it's a survivorship thing you know it's about can these explorers hang on for long enough to survive this period of depressed oil prices and i guess someone like plexus who's involved in providing the kit yeah, these guys. Is it a similar position? Well, that, well, that's right. The thing is, Plexus has been hit pretty hard, and I do mention uh, in this week's article about um, uh, an all equipment stablemate hunting. Both these are really high quality companies that we've covered in the past, and they're well managed, uh, highly experienced uh, boardroom operatives. And in the case of Plexus, I mean, it's you know it, it provides. Uh, well, I don't know if I can actually say this, but I think the, the, the Plexus offering is based around uh, technical excellence and uh, proprietary um, IP there. Uh, they provide wellhead systems and uh, uh, that, that uh, have major benefits both in terms of uh, production and, above all, uh, safety and manageability. So I think it's been said that, you know, Plexus technology had been used over in uh, the Gulf of Mexico, you know, yeah, the Mac- horizon, it wouldn't have happened. Yeah, the, the general feeling of the Macondo, right, you'd have still got the blowout, but they'd have been able to, because of the technology, um, no moving parts. Um, it, w- it would have been, un- you know, within 72 hours, we might have had a, a cessation of the well there. But uh, regardless of this, uh, as I say, this is an equipment manufacturer, and so it's been hit particularly hard because of the fall away, particularly in um, North Sea re- remits as well. I think uh, the lion's share of its revenues still come in from the North Sea, although even prior to the fall away in uh, crude prices, the company had been uh, headlong in a diversification program, and, and they've had some um, some real success in this uh, with a couple of uh, state-owned equities in Russia or state-controlled equities in uh, Russia recently, and also a major oil service provider in China. So the good news is as well is that... Um, as far as I could tell, uh, there hadn't been any sell-off um, for any of the uh, the major institutional holders, uh, you know, BlackRock chief amongst them. And also, I looked at the volumes, and the and it was erratic trading patterns after the after the profit warning, but the volumes weren't particularly high. Um, you know, it, it's it's uh, you know, it, it has got liquidity, the stock, but um, obviously it, the, the share price is a little bit volatile uh, as a result of its size. It's well capitalized. It's, it's got decent sort of uh, access to, to finance at the moment. So we don't see there's any sort of existential crisis. Uh, we, the only thing I, I would say, and I, I mentioned it in the article, is that uh, given the position, you, you might actually get a, a, some of its larger U.S. rivals coming in. I mean, there's, there's always the... Uh, well, as a bidder. As a bidder, because there's always the fear. And, and I have no indication from the company on this point. I mean, not that they would give it anyway, but uh, uh, there's always a, in, there's a, there's always a 
a sort of fear that they would go and see the institutional holders and say, uh, oh, tap them up, basically. Mm. I mean, you've written about oil services, oil equipment and services more generally in the FTSE 350 review that we published this week as well. I mean, it's not a particularly uh, happy place, but, um, you know. No, it's, it's the old uh, inverse uh, picks and shovels argument, isn't it? Because uh, whenever you see an uptick in uh, oil and gas markets, uh, it's the oil services that uh, respond first up, and uh, it's the converse is true as well. Hmm. Uh, it was the first dip. Again, it's if you look across the market as a whole, those companies that have high exposure to the North Sea are the most exposed. And uh, this isn't in the 350, of course, but those uh, Gulf Marine services I mentioned before have got a pretty interesting mix because uh, most of their, uh, or at least, yeah, actually, in fact, the, the majority of their uh, contracts are linked to national oil companies and also to companies based out in the Middle East region where the revenue seems are far more predictable. Well, I, th- I think um, we've written a piece, Ian Smith has written a piece this week on on Iran. Mm, And obviously the sanctions in Iran were lifted uh, last week when I was away. Yeah, I think it was. There's a huge opportunity. Massive opportunity there. And I think a lot of people are saying, well, you know, the sector's had a tough time, but there's some big, big contracts up for grabs out there. Well, absolutely. You've had over 10 years now of where the the local infrastructure has been degraded. Um, The capital hasn't been there to sort of maintain it, let alone improve upon it. And so these are huge opportunities for uh, UK oil and gas providers to get in there, Uh, not only in terms of production, but also in terms of uh, refining as well, because uh, like many of the world's uh, largest oil producers, Iran has to import a huge amount of finished product and sort of that has a a tremendous uh, impact on their balance of trade. So if the political situation remains stable, uh, th- that's one sort of uh, bright cloud on the horizon. Absolutely. I, th- I think a few eyebrows are raised when we put you know, Iran on the cover, saying, mm. you know, next big investment <laughs> opportunity. But it's kind of kind of turning out that way. By well, the looks yeah, of and, well, it extends to other areas, luxury goods, for instance, on the other end of the, the spectrum. Yeah, absolutely. And cosmetic surgery. I'm just looking at the chart of FTSE 350 sector performances over the last 12 months, Mark. And uh, out of the bottom six, you've got four of them. Yes, as I'm sure many. Been a fun of, year. I'm sure many of our uh, <laughs> readers have already noted. Um, it, it's 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 been extraordinary, really. And uh, and what it points to, as, as I mentioned earlier on in the piece, is that. Uh, all of this relates to uh, assumptions on prices uh, five and ten years ago. That's that's where we are. We the industry is overshot, and now there's a, a severe correction underway. And many people are saying it's overshot on the downside, but that I think remains to be seen. Another sector that's done very badly. Uh, seventh worst performing sector: food and drug retail. Harriet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, fun year for you too. Yeah. Grocery is. I mean, I think we've started the uh, the intro to the three fifty piece on a really optimistic note, which is that. Basically, it's as turbulent as it's ever been for the last few years, at least. I think and it's fair um, yeah, it's. I mean, deflation is is a huge problem in food retailing, and it's not going away anytime soon. So Tesco is the uh, the big story this week in that sector. It's a kind of funny story. Really. It's a bit of a funny story because basically this week, to summarise, the Groceries Code Adjudicator, which is sort of a new position, kind of certainly her powers at least are only slowly becoming determined. Anyway, she ruled this week that back in 2014, when the Tesco scandal broke, they did in fact, in fact, violate the code by not paying suppliers appropriately. Um, in normal circumstances, this would warrant a fine. She's unable to find them because her powers were not as they are now back when it happened. So they will avoid a fine, but that didn't uh, stop plenty of <laughs> news outlets running with the story. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a funny story that it's kind of like. 
not really news. We kind of knew that Tesco yeah, had been behaving I mean, very badly. Bradley and I deliberated long and hard on whether to even sort of cover it, I suppose, because we thought, well, this is this is not new. We knew that they had violated something. We knew that four executives had been fired. We knew that it was serious. And, you know, there was a lot of talk at the time about whether they would be even sued, you know, had they had they violated the law. So we sort of looked at it and we thought, well, what are the questions that come out of a ruling from a watchdog like this? And we decided that the prominent question was really still around corporate governance. Can shareholders in Tesco really trust management to have turned over a new leaf? Can they trust that drastic Dave Lewis has, has done enough to really change the culture at that company so that if you want to invest now for recovery purposes we have our own view on that but if if you did want to do that can you trust that your money is going to be safe this time around Mm, well i guess dave lewis wasn't there when these things happened no he wasn't but he had actually been in the post for about three weeks um prior to it breaking so but you might suggest that he kind of knew that something was he had actually been working at a supplier to Tesco. Yes, he mm. had. Um, so, I mean, it's all assumptions. We can only judge from from our sort of glass house over here. But, um, yeah. you know, uh, yes, let's let's assume that he knew what was going on. He was brought in really as a rescue chief executive to kind of take the situation and, and manage the, the fallout. And got um, this news, this bad news out quite quickly well he, he got, got it out, out just before like a day before their actual results i think yeah, yeah right, Harry, it was he, so. i wasn't actually covering the sector at the time it was our ex-colleague now julia bradshaw but yes i remember it breaking and um as i said he fired four executives on the spot so i think there was quite um a demonstrable effort at zero tolerance that this was not going to be how tesco would act in the future um ex- especially under his leadership so you can assume that however in our piece this week we've sort of done our due diligence of our own and, and gone around some of the sort of not watchdogs but sort of bodies that really look out for investors interests on corporate governance levels and and spoken to them about what their views are on on how tesco has managed the scandal so far and, and to what extent it's it it's a thing of the past. Mm. Well, I think it, I think it was a smart move on his part. Um, you know, I think he has to do something big when he came in. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, he's not going to turn around a juggernaut like Tesco in its entirety overnight. But you know, Tesco had long been accused of of um, you know nefarious practices. I think it was a smart thing to go after straight away. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, they had a better than expected Christmas trading period. And I think what's also interesting at speaking to a few people from things like investment associations and things is that they they all say you know now tesco operationally speaking financially speaking is going to be held to such high standards because they don't just have a financial performance to rebuild but they have a huge trust issue with investors in the market at large so Mm. hopefully you know they can demonstrate some some sort of corporate governance measures and, and initiatives that will improve that. And then if they can keep building their financial performance, there's no reason to uh, to suspect it can't come back from the brink. Did you get any feel for whether this was, uh, you know, this, this treatment of suppliers was a Tesco-specific issue or this is something that's more of an industry-wide problem? I mean, you know, a grocery code adjudicator would not need to exist were it just one company behaving badly. Yeah, I mean, I, I spoke to one person who asked to remain anonymous, but but their, their view was certainly that this is an industry wide problem Mm. this is not just tesco at all um and you know i think other grocers are paying the price elsewhere you know the big four let's assume that people like morrison's asda are involved in or have been involved in this you know morrison's has paid the price even if it hasn't come out and said we've not paid suppliers properly you know it's basically had to exit convenience it now doesn't have a convenience chain you know dalton phillips did enough (laughs) mismanagement of that business to drive it pretty much into the ground anyway so it's not like everyone else is 
doing it behind the scenes and getting off scot-free. It's not, you know, performance-enhancing drugs type stuff. It's just, I suppose, what part of mismanagement comes out quicker. Well, you say it's not performance-enhancing drugs, but it's, I mean, it's performance performance enhancing financial management and yeah, it's if performance you, if enhancing accounting for sure it, so so it is a kind of creative accounting thing that it's makes companies look better accounting. on a certain at a certain point in time yeah. than they perhaps otherwise are you yeah know. i mean i can i can say that as a former auditor you know um timing issues can can mean a profitable year or a loss making year it depends when you book the revenue it depends when when you book the profit that's no secret and financial directors up and down the country the globe over are involved in creative accounting sometimes it's perfectly legal but then you get into to interesting realms of you know a company's responsibility to its shareholders mm. so you know is a company's responsibility to maximize the profit that it makes at the expense of suppliers to give better returns to its shareholders or no it's or not. is it so, more important to, to to run a business that is equitable for everybody involved yeah. even if shareholder returns suffer a yeah. little so companies law actually we, we we did take a little look at this this week as well and this is what has put some people in the mind that tesco there are actually grounds to sue management um because really companies law there's a directive in there about directors responsibilities i think it's section 172 if memory serves me correctly that's the one yeah. <laughs> yeah, I read that too. Yeah. And it basically states that um, you know, the director's responsibilities are to be honest and fair to shareholders and transparent about their activities. So you can assume that Tesco is absolutely not doing that and not only to shareholders they have to be fair and honest with their suppliers as well. Well, um, I guess I guess there's an ex- expectation among investors as well. They don't want to be, you know, uh, investing in companies which which actually do bad things. No, I think there's always a, a sort of moral issue to investment, which is sort of a whole topic with, within itself. And depending what sector you're looking at, those those issues become spliced in different ways. But um, yeah, I think everyone would like to think they're doing the the honourable thing and that the companies they're investing. I mean, the problem with something like Tesco is that obviously it's not just, and this is another thing we discovered this week, it's not just retail investors that necessarily are managing their own portfolios or their own holding in Tesco. Very often they're invested through funds. Mm. So they also have a, a hidden layer of having to trust the fund manager that's working with their money by putting it in something like Tesco. They have to trust that their fund manager's not thinking, oh, well, that'll be fine. I'm, I'm sure these issues will work itself out. So it's layers and layers of trust. Yeah, I mean, the whole investment thing has been a, a bit of a minefield and uh, you know it's it perhaps I mean Bradley you've probably covered this in your previous uh, role but uh, yeah. ne- never the greatest performers but um, no I mean there, there are there are the odd ones who do very well I mean um, you know Kames eth- a multi-asset ethical uh, fund that's done done very well Audrey Ryan I think is the manager um, done very well there are examples of good performance um, and performance that keeps up with non-ethical peers if you can sort of say that mm. but yeah it's a tough space and i think the toughest thing for investors is actually there isn't a um a one rule fits all thing you know you have to if you're going to invest with a house through the ethical fund you need to read what ethical to them means because it chances are it'll be different oh yeah i mean i've looked at it in the past there's been plenty of plenty of companies you know so well, oil companies for example well, why, many people don't think are ethical well why hasn't someone uh, mandated an unethical trust I, I'm pretty sure there, there is one in America, actually. Is there? Yeah, there's, there is a vice fund in America. <laughs> yeah. well, I Guns, tobacco and booze. It'd be interesting seeing the returns on that. Yeah, it's not that great. I mean, you know. Well, tobacco's been pretty good the past 
decade. Yeah, actually, guns are doing really well at the moment over in uh, over in the US. Well, so Smith and Wesson is listed out there. Yeah, they had the best best sales ever. I'd just like to caveat that tobacco has done well because it's justified itself through its dividends. It's not that operationally fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's talk dividends. Actually, that's a good uh, good segue into the uh, Capita story, which uh, you put together this week, Mark. So we've got some the latest dividend uh, monitor from Capita, and it's looking a bit a bit iffy. Yeah, I mean, we, we covered it at the, at the third quarter mark, and, and at that stage, Capital were um, predicting a slight increase over 2016. But of course, uh, there's been a run up there with a the number of uh, companies either canning the dividend or, um, you know, or slashing it back. And again, this is uh, a lot of this is linked to the um, the resource space as well. But I believe uh, Standard Chartered as well was that, a, was that did they pull their dividend? Yeah, they I think they did. did didn't they? Yeah. yeah. Well, there's been yeah. a, there's been a few other high. high profile ones and so um, basically capita of saying that we're going to see a pullback in this year um, it's not a dramatic pullback but it's uh, it's substantial enough about over three billion um, pounds has been taking out of, out of the system so far I, gu- I guess the only um, uh, the only sort of uh, glimmer of hope there is that we're expecting more uh, US dollar strength for the remainder of this year and uh, around about 40% of UK dividends are quoted in US dollars, so that's going to transfer capital yeah. saying upwards of a billion in terms of that currency benefit at the moment. So uh, bearing in mind, of course, that the last two years have been quite strong anyway. Last year was uh, particular. well, last year was strong in special dividends. The year before was unprecedented because of uh, Vodafone's sale of its uh, Verizon Wireless stake as well. So... Uh, while it's while it's certainly not positive, there's still a pretty good dividend pool out there in the UK. I think. Mm. Well, I think the thing that struck me about it was their comment that they are far less certain about the outcome for the year ahead than they've been in a long time, and I think that is the thing that um, struck me about the report. And I guess that's one thing that investors need to be mindful of and you know aware of you know if they've got stocks that might cut their dividend or how cover is shaping up or maybe see it as an opportunity to buy into companies whose share prices might now be depressed because they have cut their dividends but the chances are it might come back so well, there's yeah. quite a lot to think about that's like my entire portfolio <laughs> well, we'll have a better idea obviously because we're just entering the um the full year reporting season at the moment and, and there's probably going to be some um some nasty surprises in there, but uh, well, like, there were some figures out from Ernst and Young recently, which suggested profit warnings were on the up. Yeah. Uh, probably like, the high, fat higher than we'd seen since 2009. I think their figures suggested. So, that, I mean, that, well, it could be just a bit of housekeeping as well. I don't want to um, uh, underestimate the, the difficulties that companies are facing at the moment. But uh, when we're swinging into a downturn with the economy at the moment, uh, companies tend to get uh, bad news out the way fairly quickly. Mm. Okay, Shell, they're a big dividend payer. Yeah. Vote, vote uh, this week in favour uh, among Shell shareholders in favour of the BG takeover. So that's, yeah. that's good news potentially. Yeah. Well, it's, so. it's it's yeah. I think I think it's good news. I think the the deal itself still makes uh, strategic sense. Uh, I think we were speaking about this the other week, and uh, there's been a lot of uh, press comment about the fact that. Uh, in line with the fall away in energy prices, the deal no longer made any economic sense. But it seems to be an absurd position anyway, because when the deal was originally formulated, the oil price was taken into account, but it wasn't the be-all and end-all. It's a strategic move, which will allow Shell to uh, 
uh, increase the proportion of uh, LNG and natural gas mm-hmm. that they uh, supply to world markets. It makes uh, it made sense at the time for BG as well, that, who are facing uh, some problems after years of uh, seamless uh, seeming progress. They had problems uh, with their uh, uh, their offshore assets in the Santos Basin. Uh, there's the whole uh, uh, issue over uh, down in Brazil with the Petrobras uh, scandal, and they were undercapitalized as well. And so, um, you know, the, the union to me seemed to make perfect sense, and it still does. Yeah, it makes sense to me. I've got some BG shares. Yeah, please take them on me as quickly as possible. Shell's <laughs> no, um, dividend, there's been a few, few worries about that, but you think it's safe? Yeah, I think so, but if for no other reason that, that management is prioritising it as well. I mean, uh, Shell, along with um, uh, BHP Billiton, have got a tremendous record in sort of sustaining dividends and increasing them over the years. It's uh, one of the reasons why, uh, okay, we've seen some weakness in the in the share price of late. That's uh, only to be expected, but it's uh, it's a major reason why the shares are so well supported. I mean, of course, they're, they're heavily mandated as well. Um, but w- w- I, I, I can't imagine any circumstances this year which will see a, a cut in Shell's dividend. Oh, my God, did I just say that? Yeah, OK. <laughs> well, thanks, Jonah. <laughs> we'll blame you when it all goes wrong. Uh, just, uh, just to go back to what we were saying about the performance of Vice, uh, in what was a pretty dismal year for the market, tobacco up 7.2%, beverages up 6.8%. There you go. There you go. Defensiveness still has its attractions. Okay, let's come back to you, Bradley, and wrap up the news. Thought the uh, the Andrew Bailey appointment at the FCA was quite interesting and surprising. Yeah, it's going to be quite an interesting one that because um, the 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 view is, I suppose, that the. Um Andrew, who's been at the Bank of England about 30 years in he's, various roles. And he's a Prudential Regulation Authority chief at the moment. Yeah, he is. Yeah, His signature's on banknotes, so you, mm. if you might recognise the name, that might be why. Um, he's going to be heading up the FCA now. And so there's um, the early kind of reaction to this is that the, um, the force, I suppose, of the FCA upon banks and asset managers might now be a little lighter than it has been under previous um, guises and previous chief executives, which actually, I mean, you could argue maybe that it's time for that because our banks are now very well capitalised. I mean, yes, they keep getting fined, but they keep being able to pay these fines and they keep increasing their tier one capital ratios. So you could argue now maybe we can sort of let the reins out a little bit well, on they, them anyway. They have already paid a lot of redress for past misdemeanours. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, the bank, the level of bank fines over the past few years has been... I mean, astro- I mean you could argue there's never, there would never be enough, but, I mean, they, they've paid billions of pounds in fines and they are being um, a bit more responsible um, in terms of their lending. I know I'm trying to remortgage at the moment and they ask a lot of questions They now. do ask a lot of questions. Yes, I've been there. Yeah. I've been there. Um, I mean, you could also suggest perhaps then this is an appointment uh, that is really designed to get banks moving again uh, in support of the economy. I think so. And um, I'm pretty sure it was on the FT yesterday I was reading that I'm not sure he actually applied. I think um, he was sort of asked, would you like the job kind of thing? I'm sure he has the right credentials, absolutely. But sure, surely when your name is on banknotes, you don't have to apply for jobs. Well, maybe maybe that's, <laughs> maybe that's the level he's obviously reached. <laughs> but I mean, obviously, it's an ob- obviously the, the chief executive of the SCA is um, always going to be a political appointment. They're mm. meant to have a Chinese wall between them, but let's be realistic. So, um, I mean, There's a point to consider as well. Um, a lot has been made recently, the fact that most bank lending in recent years, a high proportion of bank lending is 
asset-based lending. In mm. other words, it's not actually fueling any economic growth. It's, it's fueling asset bubbles. And um, it's a strategic uh, aim of government, or presumably it is, for them to get lending to small and medium-sized businesses again, which is just not happening. Not necessarily good news then for the, uh, the challenger banks, which, uh, which have been trying to make that their own. Quite possibly. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Watch this space. Um, and uh, one other very interesting thing that you put together, um, and I'm sure Harriet has a view on this, as well as Kingfisher, which is the new spotlight this week. Yeah. Uh, a company that has taken an awful lot of my money in, in recent <laughs> weeks. Big strategic review there. Yeah, they had a capital markets day. Um, their sort of one Kingfisher plan. Um, it had been announced previously, but the, the the reason why we've sort of spent a bit of time looking at it again this week is that the the financial details of it have been released. So, how much it's going to cost, how much they think it will mean the company makes above what it makes now after the plan, that sort of thing. So, obviously, those those numbers are quite important to us and our, our view on the company, um, and they'll be interesting to investors as well. I guess the very sort of uh, trying to keep it brief. I mean, I, I, I did watch the webcast of the capital markets day. Um, there's a nice story there. You know, management have done their homework. They've been to something like 3,000 customers or something in they different countries. Me. They didn't ask you. They, they saw you. You were already a committed customer anyway. <laughs> so. But they, they've been around a lot of the customers. They've, they've tried to... Um, in management's words, anyway, try to understand you know what people want to do, what they're sort of what they find easy, what they find difficult, what they want, what they like and don't like, and so they're trying to really now make um, the proposition at Kingfisher more common across the brands or well unified. So historically, they've tried to get their brands, which include things like B and Q and um, Screw Fix, Screw Fix, yep, and there's a couple of uh, European brands as well. Um, yeah, they've tried to sort of get this um, unified product range before but it's been a bit of an opt-in thing so. yeah that was always the message they used to give it yeah was, uh, and so it's never really happened not everyone opted in so no. you never had a unified range whereas um, Veronique Laurie now definitely wants to have a unified range low cost always she said those words quite a lot so there's potentially a play for you know sort of you know the squeezed incomes potentially of um, people um, of the consumer now um, and they're aiming for the, it's a five-year plan, and they're hoping that at the back end of that, the company will produce five hundred million pounds a year more in profits. Um, along the way, obviously, there's going to be a, a fair bit of spending. They ha- they're in net cash at the moment. They they won't be by the end of it. They'll be in net debt, but not a huge amount. And um, they are planning to return six hundred million, um, likely through share buybacks, on top of their dividend in the next three years. So we've left it on hold. I mean, you, you could say maybe I'm sitting on my hands there a bit, but I think the market's reaction to this initially was negative. The shares fell about 3 or 4%, I think. Things like this have been tried before. It does seem that they are, that Miss um, Laurie is going to deliver now. It does seem like there's a bit more of a, right, we're going to have one buying team. We're going to have less suppliers. We're going to work with suppliers to make sure the range is unified, is good. Well, I hope it's Screwfix's buying team, not B&Q buying team, because I've spent a lot of money, but it's not been in B&Q. No, well, I think it's going to be an amalgamation of everybody, but um, there won't be as many people on. There's about sort of there's a, there are several buying teams. I think I understand mm. at the moment, whereas that won't be the case now. And they're going to be working with suppliers to actually design the product, so reducing cost as well. So there are a lot of um, you want to you want to believe it'll work. It sounds like they've they've tried to do the homework here. They've tried to understand their their customer. Um, it will be just very interesting to see how that goes. And I think at the moment, we're willing to sit on the sidelines and, and wait and see. Yeah. Well, no, no, I mean, as I said, it's, it's an interesting space. Um, you know, I've bought a lot of stuff recently. 
I haven't just shopped in Screwfix. A lot of a lot of what I've bought for my loft conversion uh, has been online. So you know, this this yeah, independent uh, online bathroom retailers and flooring retailers. And you know what? It's easier to buy stuff from them than it ever has been tiling retailers. Mm. Good prices. You know, it's a tough market, I would say, for someone like B and Q. And I guess that's reflected across the whole industry. It's just yeah, you know I they're mean, they're in the in the firing line of this as much as anyone. Yeah, I mean, we we had a trading update this week from Carpet Right, and um, I think Tops Tiles is is not too far off as. Well well and the Dunelm which is another homewares group they don't really do furnish it you know they don't really do sort of hardcore furnishings they do sort of more soft furnishings but overall the landscape was not good over the last quarter and that's got a lot to do with the fact that high street footfall is 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 so low mm. um which is you know just backing up what you just said which is that everyone's preferring to do their research online and and eventually just buy it online it's just they see it as easier i it, don't know it is and you know what i mean you know if you're buying some flooring you think well you've got to go and see it but actually you know these guys these these independents their, their models are getting quite quite slick so you, you know you for, for for a pound you can order samples of you know flooring tiling and you know so you yeah, get so the online doing, proposition is uh, it's getting so good yeah yeah, I mean, Tops Tiles, I spoke to their management in depth at the, about this at the last set of results because I'm fascinated by the idea that customers use online as a research tool and then they go into stores so knowledgeable, more knowledgeable than they've ever been before, so much savvier. And I mean, Tops Tiles management is insistent that it, it is only that. It is only a research tool and they very rarely sell things online. They, they make more sales in store. Personally, I think that's changing. I think, oh, I it's, think it's shifting. Changing. Yeah, I and think so too. I think, you know, Tops Tiles has invested a lot in its technology to make its on online site um, sort of user-friendly and really sort of interactive. But it's sort of a vicious circle because the more that they do that, the more they're going to see their customers start to just purchase online. I, I think tops are incredibly uncompetitive in their pricing. Yeah. I really do. Uh, I actually end up buying tiling from Wix having gone to a lot of these these places because, you know, what you've, you've, I've checked everywhere out. I'll, I'll shop for the best price. Mm. Best product at the best price. Interesting. Well, we've got we've got a site visit with tops coming up, hopefully, so uh, we'll be able to see more inside that business. Mm, well, I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued. I think they've got a lot of work to do. I think it's getting tough mm. out there. Um, I think the on- online side of things is, you know, as I said, these independents are really coming coming into their own now yeah and on the high street they're just having to slash prices across the board i mean that was the real message out of carpet right i think the shares went down about eight percent yesterday it was pretty drastic and uh, a lot of it's got to do with margins they're just having to keep keep slashing prices to remain competitive and they're going to have to take a margin hit to do that indeed i'll tell you what somebody's tiling the tiling retailer and in fact the flooring retailer both you know i sort of browsing on the site ordered my samples i got a, got an email from a, an individual saying i am your point of contact now I am your wow. your representative. I am going to guide you through this whole process. Customer service that these big big guys just yeah. cannot do. No, I mean B and Q is investing in its website as well as part of this plan. Maybe it'll it probably won't be able to do that type of service. I imagine, but um, it'd be interesting. Also, the other interesting thing, very quickly, is unconscious of our, our time. But um, you've obviously got the sale of home base happening. Mm. West Farmers, big Australian company, is coming over to buy it bringing in a new brand, I think Brunning, I think it is, or Bunning, I can't remember which one. Um, and so that's an interesting potential development in this market as well. And another reason why we're sort of on, on hold with the, with Kingfisher, because we, we're not quite sure yet how um, West Farmers will operate. Um, you know, Will it go hard discount or will it just be a good rival to Kingfisher? It's just a bit uncertain. Yeah, well, I haven't set foot in a home base in years. And uh there's a reason for that. <laughs> um, anyway, general retailers uh, down 3.7% over the year. So not, mm. not awful. 
not brilliant either. Not awful, not brilliant. And it's it's the same thing that we're just discussing now, which is the challenge that a lot of general retailers are having to fight on two fronts. A lot of them have an existing store estate and then they're having to set up an online uh, offering that competes with some really sort of disruptive groups that just literally operate off the web. And I'm not saying those groups don't have overheads. Of course they do. They have distribution to, to sort out. But, you know, unless you're someone like Next, which had an existing directory business and so had all of that distribution in place, you know, you've been you've been having a very expensive few years. <laughs> mm, absolutely. Construction of materials was the fourth best performing sector. That would include companies like Howard Joinery, which is a trade-focused uh, kitchen supplier, uh, Travis Perkins, which owns Wix. So, I mean, it's a market that's definitely, you know, good for investors, potentially. Yeah, I mean, it just suggests that you have to go sort of on the construction side as opposed to the retail side. You know, it seems like uh, I know the the, uh, the new chief executive at Marks and Spencers has, has been described as a real trader. And that's what they think is, is, is good for a company like Marks and Spencers. Maybe that's just not true of the sort of home improvement side of... Uh side of things no well we shall see we shall see and i guess that kind of wraps up uh i think so well it certainly has filled up the time that we have available to us lots lots going on in the magazine this week as i said it's the FTSE 350 special so uh the company's team have have been working very very hard putting together uh, a 40-page supplement looking at every sector within the FTSE 350 and giving their their lowdown on on what to expect in the year ahead and which companies might prosper and which ones might struggle. That's really the main feature of the magazine. There is lots of other stuff in the news section. We've got CMC coming to market. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, Simon Thompson's talking about some bear market signals. Simon Thompson's bear market uh, strategies are very, very worth uh, listening to, Um, really telling you how to survive the bear market. Uh, Nicole Elliott, the trader, is talking about money creation uh, in response to a read a letter. She's put a, a particularly excellent uh, column there uh, together. It's, it's double the length of her usual columns uh, and, and worth, uh, worth a read. Uh, lots in the personal finance and fun section, uh, which they will talk about on their podcast. The usual tips, obviously, uh, this week. Sex Focus, Daniel's written on aerospace. Yeah, yeah. Interesting times there. Exactly. Cyclical decline or along the supply chain there. Difficult, difficult one again. Uh, what's aerospace done this year? Not great, is it? Minus 16%. Dear, dear, dear. Yeah, yeah. Defence might be bouncing back. Defence might be, but we don't know about civil aviation yet. No, that's true. Stock screens. Algie's gone back to his Petrosky screen. Is that how you pronounce it? (laughs) And uh, we're starting to get a few more results coming back again after our sort of Christmas lull on the results front. So it's all going to start getting busier over the next few weeks. Indeed. Okay, so uh, thank you, everyone. Thank you, Harriet. Thank you, Bradley. Thank you, Mark. Uh, Pick up the magazine in all good news agents. £4.70, the FTSE 350 review. It's uh, it's a real bumper issue. Definitely should uh, set you up well for the year ahead. See you next week. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media. Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 